You're listening to Randall Wallace Presents, formerly Bridging the Political Gap, the number one American history podcast of 2024 by Feedspot.com. Clips in this presentation are from C-SPAN. There is a clip titled, Media Reaction to Trump's Win. The history won't forget how Obama was treated from the Huffington Post. An interview from Christian Amanpour and Company and audio from the New York Times, included in this presentation. When the history books are written about this institution, and they pick out the few senators who really made a difference for America, there is not a doubt that the senator from Kansas will be near the top of the list. We wish him Godspeed and the challenges ahead. Mr. President, I yield the floor. June 11th. 1996 was one of the most emotional days of my life and one of the most beautiful days of our lives because of all the tributes and the warmth and the love that was in that room for Bob Dole. Um, It was uh, quite an event because he was not only stepping down from his role as majority leader of the Senate, he was giving up his Senate seat. And he loved the Senate. forget when he came to Mississippi as a new member of the Senate to defend those who were in charge of disaster benefits after Hurricane Camille had struck our Gulf Coast in 1969. There were some in the Senate who were prospective candidates for president who were on the other side of the aisle who chaired the committees. Well, they came down to investigate how our state was dispersing disaster benefits and suggested with a lot of national attention that we were discriminating in our state against some of our citizens in that process. And it really was blatant posturing and trying to take advantage of an emotional situation to curry favor in the national political arena. And Bob Dole, young, new United States senator, could see through that. And he defended our elected governor the other officials in Mississippi who were working very hard to try to take care of a situation and deal with an enormous disaster. Huge uh, money damages had been lost. A lot of personal suffering. Lives had been lost. And Bob Doe was willing to come down and stand up for what would have been a politically incorrect cause defending uh, the state of Mississippi. I remember that, and all of Mississippi remembers that. And if they wonder why the numbers are like they are, in the presidential polls. Who seeks recognition? President. Distinguished senior senator from Alaska is recognized. Mr. President, it's with a sad heart that I join uh, these comments about the majority leader. I've I've known uh, Senator Dole for a long time. And I've known him as a man who is uh, unquestionably a leader. 
There are people who have uh, mannerisms that come from various experiences in their life. And whenever I think of Bob Dole, I think of a, a great many men I've known in my life who were tested in war. He not only was tested, but he was severely injured and really came back uh, in, in a miraculous way through the support that he got from his own townspeople uh, in Kansas, through the really the skill of a great surgeon in Chicago. But he came back and decided uh, that the country that had given him that opportunity to recover from the effects of war was a country that he owed something to. And he has committed his life, really, to trying to make America a better place. I, I really uh, don't uh, um, know too often that I sort of puddle up. Future generations will look to what we did during our watch here in the Senate, and they're going to find a great many marks made by Senator Bob Dole, even beyond being a leader. The work that he did, along with others, in, in saving the Social Security system, evolving a bipartisan solution, although it's not totally permanent, it was historic. What uh, Senator Dole did, working on the Finance Committee, and, and that law did, in fact, preserve Social Security system, the Social Security system. But Senator Dole goes beyond that in, in my mind because I see him with uh, the Secretary of Transportation when she came to Alaska, standing on the back of a railroad car, the type of railroad car that uh, former presidents have used or presidential candidates have used as they've made whistle-stop campaigns through the country. I hope Bob Dole does that as a candidate. But clearly, uh, I saw the way he met with our Alaska Native people, with Alaskans, and the way he enjoyed the outdoors, and, and really has been quite supportive of those of us who represent uh, our state. The, the Bob Dole I know is a man that you never have to ask him twice where he stands. You can take his word to the bank. And the decision he made today, Mr. President, the distinguished president pro tempore. Now, Mr. President, today, Senator Bob Dole announced that he will not be a candidate for election to the U.S. Senate. He's announced his resignation. I have been in the Senate for 22 years. I've been here with many leaders, majority and minority leaders. And I can say that he is one of the ablest and finest leaders that this country has ever had, serving in the Congress of the United States. He is a man of principle. He stands for what is right. 
he felt it his duty since he's going to run for president to give his full attention to that campaign. He felt he couldn't do both, look after the Senate's wake and run for president too. And unlike some people who would have attempted to do both, he gave up all the power in the Senate because he is a majority leader here and has served the longest term, I believe, any majority leader in history. He's made a fine record. He's given all that up because he wanted to do his duty and felt he couldn't run for president and also look after his duties here in the Senate. Now, Mr. President, he knows what responsibility means. He's a man of courage. He was a man of compassion. He could walk with kings, and yet he was at home with the lowly people. I've seen many instances in which he showed great compassion here and with employees and with members of the public, with the unfortunate, with the disabled, with the troubled. And everybody sometimes has a problem. He took pleasure in helping people to solve their problems. A man of compassion and a man who loved people. Then in all of these things, he was courteous. In this position, he has a majority leader. He could have been short with people. And he could have said things that had gotten away with it. That wouldn't have been characteristic of Bob Dole. But he was always nice to people. He always tried to help people. And for that reason, we highly respected him. Because of all these good qualities, I am proud to claim his friendship. I am proud that he's an American. And I am pleased that he took the step he did today, which shows strength and courage and principle. And we look forward to his coming back to the government as President of the United States. Thank you, Mr. President. Mr. President, the Senator from Colorado. Thank you, Mr. President. I rise also to pay tribute to uh, Leader Dole and join uh, my colleagues, the distinguished senator from South Carolina, as well as others that have spoken out. Mr. President, there can be no doubt for those of us who listened to uh, Senator Dole's remarks today that this was truly one of the great uh, events in American history. One had the sense and the feel that great things were taking place. I suppose I will remember him for his judgment, both now and in the campaign ahead. Uh, I recall specifically an issue that I think many of us felt very strongly about, and that is the president's uh, commitment of troops to Bosnia. I oppose that with all my heart, and Bob Dole opposed it as well. He spoke out frankly and honestly about the mistake of deploying American men and women in a way that we didn't stand behind them. And when the debate was done, and when public opinion was clearly on the side of us who were reluctant to deploy U.S. troops into that theater, and when the president, in spite of all of it, had sent American men and women into that zone, we had the chance to vote on the floor 
on a vote that would have embarrassed the president by undercutting the funding that he would have for an action he'd taken. I considered it a tough vote. I didn't want to embarrass my president, but I didn't want him to have to go and serve in an area where we hadn't made a clear commitment. I believe Bob Dole shared my concern about the deployment. He said so frankly and honestly. But he also was concerned about America's influence and prestige and the president's ability to deal with others around the world. He passed up a chance to embarrass the president of the United States by voting for that resolution, by voting to sustain the president on a policy that he did not like. For Bob Dole, it was more important to support this nation and support its commander-in-chief than it was gain a political advantage. Some could disagree with his vote. I did. But none could disagree with his motivation. For him, what was important was America and the viability of the commander-in-chief, even though he was someone he disagreed with. That kind of integrity, that kind of honesty, that kind of commitment to our nation are surely qualities that are not only rare, but desperately needed. I don't know what uh, our maker has in mind for Bob Dole. He's tested him in ways that many of us have never been tested. But I can't help but believe that Bob Dole's service is not finished yet. At an hour when our country desperately needs his integrity and his character, I'm glad there's a Bob Dole, the real thing. June 11th, 1996. I remember being glued to my TV. It was an extraordinary day. Bob Dole was honored by having a balcony named after him. It was one that he had used frequently to get sun, and it was known as the beach. It became the Robert J. Dole Balcony. He left after his speech to an enormous crowd of well-wishers seeing him off. It struck me, looking back now, as more than just a farewell to an honorable senator. But really, Dole was a symbol of an entire generation, the generation who created the American century. They were leaving the stage, and a grateful nation was saying goodbye and simply thank you. Thank you for winning a war against tyranny. Thank you for your sacrifices to keep our nation free. Thank you for guiding our nation to being a more just and equal for all of its citizens. Thank you for winning the Cold War and defeating communism. And thank you for leaving the United States stronger and freer than you found it. An economics and military superpower and the most prosperous country in the history of the world. Bob Dole had come to symbolize that generation of Americans, what Tom Brokaw called the greatest generation. And now they were leaving the stage, not just in politics, but in entertainment and in business and in the news media too. And a new generation of leaders were coming to the, take their place. It was the age of the, the baby boomers, Bill Clinton, Newt Gingrich, the 24-hour news cycle, the nonstop campaign, the constant fundraising, the campaign consultants, the focus group-driven marketing, social media, extreme politics, conspiracy theories and outlandish accusations, 
the real the rise of theatrics and emotional hot buttons and the rise of fake news. Well, let's see where that's led us since that June day when Bob Dole stepped aside. On that day, he spoke not about the easy things, but the hard ones. He talked about the important role of the press. He talked about the hard things when they came together across the aisle and provided equal access to people for civil rights, for the rights of the handicapped, and saving Social Security for the next generation. He talked about bipartisanship. He talked about the hard things, not the easy ones. And he talked about his colleagues, not his enemies, but his friends. And they reciprocated when they talked about him. His Democratic leaders recognize. The greater the adversity, the greater the adherence to principle and decency, the greater the admiration. Maybe that's why someone from South Dakota, someone of different politics, different religion, different education, can reflect on the admiration that I hold for Bob Dole with the sincerity that I do now. I've had the good fortune to work closely with the majority leader now for 18 months. The conditions for a good working relationship could not have been much worse. We had just lost the majority. He was the likely nominee to run against a Democratic president. And the House Republican leadership, now also in the majority, had proposed a contract with America. Of course, the events over the past year and a half could easily have led to bitterness and personal animosity of major consequence. I have no doubt that in virtually any other set of circumstances, there would have been no other result. The fact that it did not occur, that in spite of it all, we remain friendly, is due to Bob Dole and who he is. His civility, his pragmatism, his quick wit, his self-effacing humor has not only served him well these past 45 years of public life, but has served his colleagues and his country well, too. His sense of fairness and decency is a standard by which all people in public life should be held. He believes in the institutions of democracy and has helped guide his party and this body in a way that has enhanced them, too. And while our philosophic differences are great, his willingness to do what is difficult has been a source of admiration and respect for us all. His courage in standing for principle has been evident from the start. It was there when he broke ranks with his party to support the landmark civil rights measures of the 1960s, most notably the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting Rights Acts of 65 and 82. It was there when he championed landmark nutrition programs with a visionary leader and a giant from South Dakota whose name was George McGovern. It was there in 1991 when he and our colleague Tom Harkin arguably did more for the disabled than anyone in our nation's history. And it was there in this Congress when against all political advice 
fashioned a resolution on Bosnia that led to broad support for our troops being stationed there. I'm grateful to Senator Dole for that leadership, for the decency and fairness which he has demonstrated to me over these past 18 months. I've learned from him, and it has been an invaluable education. It has always impressed me that Bob Dole would come to my office for a meeting. The seasoned leader coming to the newcomer, the majority leader coming to the minority leader's office. I thought it was yet another demonstration of Bob Dole's grace and demeanor. And I know now that it was. But I also learned that in doing so, this man of the experience of thousands of such meetings could always be the one to determine when the meeting was over. I regret that we did not accomplish more together in these last two years. Obviously, bad timing was a factor. Our accomplishments have been eclipsed by our partisanship in the eyes of the American people. But nothing should cloud America's view of just a man from Kansas who began with little, who in fighting for this country lost almost all that he had, who came back to help lead this party and his country with courage and civility, who leaves this place with the gratitude of us all. And while I cannot wish him ultimate success at his next political venture, Linda and I wish Elizabeth and Bob Dole well in their new life ahead. May it be filled with good health and much happiness. I yield the floor. Mr. President, I observe the absence of a quorum. Can I call a roll? Hi, this is Randall Wallace the host of Bridging the Political Gap. First, I want to say thank you for tuning in, and I hope you've enjoyed the series. And I want to invite you back this spring when we return with some guests to talk history, politics, policy, and ways we can start to turn this poisonous atmosphere around, one person and one community at a time. I, for one, have never been more worried about our country and its future than I am right now. That's why I ran for Congress, wrote my book, and produced this series. So if you get a chance, please take a look at my book at Always Vote Your Conscience at Amazon.com. And if you're on Facebook, please come out and join our, our page, The Silent Majority, dedicated to bringing back common sense and civility to government. And I look forward to seeing you and being back this spring for another series of podcasts. concerned that when you talk about the New York Times these days, when you talk about the Washington Post these days, we're not talking about the New York Times of 50 years ago. 
We are not talking about the Washington Post of 50 years ago. We're talking about organizations that I believe have in fact decided as organizations that Donald J. Trump is bad for the United States. Ted Koppel hits on one major difference of today as compared to the previous era when it comes to journalism. While the press always had a left-leaning feel to it, just like pro wrestling, you couldn't actually prove it. But today, just like pro wrestling, they don't even try to hide it. And then, in their total disdain for President Donald J. Trump was, from the moment he rode down the escalator at Trump Tower, on full display. And it was not fair. Is that people think that Donald Trump is a clown? Do- Donald Donald Trump is a clown. I mean, does anybody seriously think that Donald Trump is serious about running for president? Donald Trump, you know, he's a clown. The likely moderator, yeah. but parents apparently believes that Donald Trump is a clown. Which Republican candidate has the best chance of winning the general election? Of the declared ones right now, Donald Trump. <laughs> President Obama will go down as perhaps the worst president in the history of the United States, exclamation point, at real Donald Trump. Well, at real Donald Trump, at least I will go down as a president. For Donald Trump this evening, 228-209. that I do think that this this is a moment, um, however you feel about this election, to keep in your hearts some of the communities that are not represented here on this set who have been directly threatened by Donald Trump in a way that nobody in this kind of position of power has ever threatened groups of Americans before. And Muslim Americans and Latino Americans and immigrants documented and otherwise right now are in fear for what the country just did and for what our country needs, not just what Trump will do, but what it means that our country just endorsed him after what he threatened uh, against those parts of our fabric. And that's a responsibility we have on all of us now, regardless of what Trump does with this power that he's just been given. Uh, Rachel, America is crying tonight. I'm not sure how much of America, but a very, very significant portion. And I mean literally crying. Uh, I, I've gotten texts from a college campus about a dorm that's just in tears. Uh, I know of another that I'm hearing from uh, elsewhere. Uh, and and the, some of the people you were just talking about are crying from California to Massachusetts about this. This is a sadness. It is a, a mourning moment for, for those people. Uh, and it is it is a moment filled with fear, filled with fear. And Donald Trump, thankfully, I don't think instilled any more fear tonight in his speech. It wasn't one of those speeches that had that kind of stuff in it. But he has a job to do. What we saw happen in the stock market is happening in the hearts of Americans. They are afraid. Donald Trump has to address that. Steve? He's no longer the celebrity apprentice guy, and he's no longer the bombastic, nonsense-spewing presidential nominee. He is the president-elect of the United States with all the awesome powers and responsibilities you know, that will come with that office. And you know, we've seen a side of him in this campaign that gives cause to worry greatly, uh, but now maybe we'll see another side. Uh, Donald J. Trump as he gets ready to assume this office and we just have to hope that that's the case. Eugene? 
some of his supporters, certainly not all the people who voted for him, but, but some, uh, took Donald Trump and what he was saying as uh, a license uh, to bigot for bigotry. I mean, they, 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 they saw him providing an umbrella under which they could be as racist as they wanted to be. I mean, just to be perfectly blunt. He needs to cut that out, and he needs to cut that out now. I was Some big news here, Megan. Huge news, uh, actually. The AP now projecting that Donald Trump has won the state of Pennsylvania. That is uh, the race, frankly. Uh, there is no path forward for Hillary Clinton. If this, uh, we've just seen that Pennsylvania has been called by AP. I think for me, this is one of the most stunning results of the night. You're awake, by the way. You're not having a terrible, terrible dream. Also, you're not dead and you haven't gone to hell. This is your life now. This is our election now. This is us. This is our country. Now, I can hear my Republican listeners cheering from here, but the fact is, this type of blatant yellow journalism is wrong. And while it's a smaller group on the conservative side, it's also a two-way street. Don't believe me? Let me remind you. Your President Obama did not Not my president. The Manchurian candidate couldn't destroy us faster. So I shamelessly say no. I want him to fail. Headed towards socialism, fascism. They're marching us towards 1984. Are you confident, 100% confident, that Barack Obama can do this job? He wants to transform exceptional private enterprise America into neo-socialist Europe. Socialism. Socialist. Socialist. Socialism would be a real step up. When are we going to wake up and start fighting the fascism? These guys are they're Stalinist. Who's the communist? Obama. Welcome to the USSA. We have a chapter in here. Is Obama a socialist? We have a president and a Bolshevik. Democratic Congress. President Obama, are you listening? Uh, this is the most greatest wealth destruction I've seen by a president. Countries. It'd be like Hitler playing golf with Netanyahu. I feel like we are talking to the Germans after uh, an, um, Hitler comes to power. This is what Hitler did with the SS. They're the enemy. Who's the enemy? Uh... Obama! You just think he doesn't care, huh? I think that he... No, I, I really don't. I think if I may say so, there's just too many people who are not going to vote for a black candidate. But, um, especially a black angry candidate... Who has a deep-seated hatred for white people. I think he is using racial anxiety for political gain. This guy is, I believe, a racist. He did make a very racist comment. I've got a president who I believe actively dislikes people like me. We have to bend over, grab the ankles, bend over forward, backward, whichever, because his father was black, because this is the first black president. Core ties to the African continent. His having grown up in Kenya. He is defending racists, and when you defend racism and defend racist acts, it's it's virtually the same. Go ahead, say it. Where? In the hizzy. In the, in the hizzy. hizzy. Thank Don't you, Smitty. we really have to have him in the white hizzy? What's with all the hoods in the hizzy? Kind of a boys in the hood handshake. This is not the guy that you invite to the White House for poetry reading. What he's trying to do is to, cre- is to rekindle the sense of black victimization. How does increasing taxes count as spending cuts in your world, Mr. Obama, maybe in Kenya. President say Trayvon could have been me 35 years ago. I guess because what? He was part of the Chum gang and he smoked pot and he did a little blow. You've decided that chugging a few 40s and rediscovering your Irish is more important. If he had been anything other than African-American and, 
and I don't mean to cast aspersions on African Americans, but he would have been impeached and convicted by now. He would be impeached if he weren't America's first black president. I think we're getting close to a high crime and misdemeanor. I believe he's the most lawless president in modern times. Former President Richard Nixon, what he did was child's play compared to the range of corruption. Why wouldn't we impeach this president for not protecting and defending Americans in the bloodbath known as Benghazi? Pretty much every day has been an impeachable offense. Can you just show us the birth certificate? Why wouldn't President Obama release his birth certificate? God does not have a birth certificate, neither does Obama. This has clearly been photocopied yes. from a book. You see that? It kind of folds back to like almost like the binding of a book. I've heard that number before, $2 million that he's spending to not have to show the birth certificate. There's a green border around it. That had to be photoshopped in. I'm trying to figure yeah. out why they well, would Well, this do that. whole border is suspect. If he had immigrated here, he'd probably love America more. A fist bump, a pound, a terrorist fist jab. The president just seems to be very uncomfortable being uh, commander-in-chief. Did you see the latte salute? It's not a latte salute, it's a chai salute. Our country's less, less safe today. He believes the bad guys are the American people. Barack Obama apparently is willing to uh, to roll the dice on that because he made these promises. Well, he's rolling them. He because if we get hit again, he's through. There it is again. What is that? That is a flag pin. You're not wearing a lapel pin, are you? I will wear one. They just hate the flag. Do you notice anything unusual about this picture? There's no Bible. President Obama has offered to, to pay out of his own pocket for the Museum of, of Muslim Culture. He's more concerned about mm -hmm. protecting the image of Islam than protecting the people of the well, United States. And we have a president who is aligned with the jihad force. You're declaring war on this country with a bunch of jihadis you brought in. You did it, you son of a bitch. No, he's not a Muslim. He's an atheist. He's an Arab. His middle name does matter. He wants to be known as Barack Hussein Obama. Here's a person who says he's a Christian. All right, let's take him at face value. Let's just to say that that's correct. But what kind of Christian? Where did he announce? I don't know. Where did he announce things? I believe that he is a Muslim. Well, he's not a Muslim. Well, we don't. No, he's not. Well, no, we do know. How many of you believe that here? How many believe? I do think it's quite possible he is Muslim, even though he says he is Christian. Why do they think he's a Muslim? Barack Obama's emotional attachment to the Muslim world has hurt the USA. President Obama was soft, almost subservient to the Muslim world. Deep emotional ties to Islam. I don't hate Obama. He's only been to church like four times since he's been president. He golfed 30 times. President Obama has taken fewer vacation days than Ronald Reagan or yeah. uh, Bush the Younger. And you say? I say he should take more. Obama's taking a vacation every five minutes. Where's the leadership? on the golf course. Is this what leadership looks like? 115 or 16 golf outings. Is he ever working? Oh, it's not even Marxism. Mm -mm, mm -mm. Older than 1848. It was, um... <sighs> the man who portrays the devil looks a lot like the President of the United States. Folks, I've been told this by high up folks. They say, listen, Obama and Hillary both smell like sulfur. They smell like hell. We're the young girl saying, no, no, help me. And the government is Roman Polanski. President Obama, who wants mandate circumcision. I feel like President Obama is just saying, you know what? <laughs> well, our president is frankly out of his mind. You're a slime ball that hates this country and is allied with a bunch of people wearing nightgowns. He bashes FNC more than ISIS, and we don't behead anybody. I just love my country. Do you think Obama is a 
crypto Muslim. We need to do something to pray to be delivered from this president who is, he is a disaster. We have removed responsible journalists from the airwaves and replaced them with people who want to burn the place down, disguised as punditry. And we've blurred the lines between all of this foolishness and social media sources to the point people don't know the difference between real journalism from responsible journalistic sources and this trash we just listened to. And that is what it is, if you want my opinion. Pure trash. On top of that, you've got newspapers like the New York Times and the Washington Post and all these other big-time newspapers blurring what should be on the editorial pages with what's on the front pages and these TV networks doing the same kind of thing with their reporting. And it is leading to a disaster on top of the political leadership we're going to talk about later. I found from Christian Amanpour, Amanpour and Company, a very fascinating interview with Ted Koppel, where he discusses the changes in journalism and the lack of responsibility we are seeing today. Now, our next guest is an expert in bringing people who are worlds apart together. Ted Koppel is a member of the Broadcasting Hall of Fame who made his name as anchor of ABC News Nightline for over two decades. And in 1988, before there ever were any formal peace negotiations at all, he hosted an unprecedented town hall between Israelis and Palestinians live from Jerusalem. Look at that picture there. He was sitting on a symbolic wall created between the two sides. He's been speaking to our Walter Isaacson about the state of journalism and democracy today with the United States in the throes of this impeachment trial. So you've been through a lot of these wars before and these scandals before. Tell me how you think the press is covering this one. In some respects, extraordinarily well. I mean, there is some phenomenal reporting going on. On the other hand, I think it is, it is too easy for people to quite literally sort of divide the press down the middle uh, and establish quite easily who's for and who's against. Uh, and I think that is troublesome because it means that we have lost our capacity to be viewed as uh, objective observers of what's going on. Do you think newspapers like the Washington Post and the New York Times in particular have moved away from objective journalism, especially when it comes to President Trump? Let me tell you a story, Walter. Um, it, it goes back probably about 30 or 35 years. Uh, I, I was doing Nightline at that time and I was the managing editor and I called up a reporter at the New York Times who had done a particularly good story, and I asked him if he would come and appear on Nightline that evening. Uh, and he said, I'm going to have to check with Abe. Abe Rosenthal at the time was the executive editor of the New York Times. And he called me back a little while later and he said, Abe said, uh, sure, if you want to go do Nightline, you go ahead and do Nightline. But then don't come back to the New York Times. <laughs> The point being, and there were actually two points. One, Abe didn't want his reporters sharing whatever their reporting had been with a rival news organization. But also, he didn't want his reporters, as he put it, uh, if you go on, couples going to ask you some tough questions, and you may end up expressing your personal opinion. 
I don't want my New York Times reporters expressing their personal opinions on TV. That clearly has changed. You can't watch MSNBC or CNN, for that matter, without seeing a whole bunch of spear carriers from the New York Times, from the Washington Post. Uh, and I must tell you, and I say this, I say this to you, and I, I see you occasionally on, on Morning Joe, um, when a reporter from the New York Times or the Washington Post ends up on one of those programs, uh, sitting next to Mika Brzezinski, it's very hard for that reporter at that point to lay claim to absolute objectivity, whether or not anything that he or she says ends up being subjective or ends up being perceived as being in favor of one side or the other. The mere fact that they are on a program that is perceived as being very left of center and very anti-Trump, I think undermines the public perception of those people as being objective. But don't you think that opinionated journalism is in some ways more honest, that reporters have always had biases, but now at least they get to express their opinions. And we know who's on Fox, who's on MS, who's on CNN, what they're saying on Twitter and Facebook. Yeah, I mean, it's not as though uh, we've never had the opportunity to express opinions before. It's just that in the past, we've limited those opinions to the op-ed pages. Uh, and that's no longer the case. Uh, and, and that, I think, is a step in the wrong direction. It is too easy for enemies of really good journalism. And I don't want anyone to think that, that I'm uh, in, in any way deprecating uh, what appears on the front pages of, of the New York Times and the Washington Post. I think there's some really brilliant journalism going on. Uh, but A, I don't really like seeing analysis pieces on the front page of a major newspaper. I think they belong in the back uh, on one of the op-ed pages. Uh, and B, when those reporters whose reporting may be absolutely objective appear on programs that are perceived by almost everyone who watches them uh, as having a vested political interest in one direction or another, uh, I think the reporters end up being perceived as, as having uh, too much of a stake in the game. Uh, no, I don't think it's a good thing. And so you think that cable TV news in some ways has undermined uh, objective journalism? Well, I think cable TV news in, in many respects, uh, look, obviously what happened is the first to do it uh, was Rupert Murdoch uh, over at Fox, and it became hugely profitable. Uh, you know, you may then know, know the numbers better than I do, but I think Fox these days probably earns about one and a half billion dollars a year. That's real money. Uh, and at the time when Fox started doing that, MSNBC was nowhere, doing nothing, making zero. Uh, and it is only when the folks over at NBC decided that they were going to turn MSNBC into a liberal counterpart uh, to what Fox was doing, that they started really improving their ratings and therefore also improving the amount of money they were making. 
Uh, I mean, let's not kid ourselves. Donald Trump has been very, very good for the business of journalism. Do you think that democracy is getting undermined by the fact that people are getting their news and information from more partisan and ideological sources? I don't think democracy is being is being strengthened by it. Um, is it being undermined? Yes, I think that a democracy requires, desperately needs, what are widely perceived by people of all political stripes as objective sources of news. Otherwise, it's too easy to dismiss what is being said by one side or the other simply because they don't share your political point of view. Uh, you know, that doesn't mean that uh, network news or cable news or the major newspapers cannot be very tough in terms of the reporting they do. But I don't think their reporters should be perceived as siding with one group rather than the other. I think, that's, I think that does undermine democracy, yes. Isn't it true, though, that some stories can be very, very anti-Trump, but also be true? And that maybe journalists shouldn't be saying on the one hand and on the other hand, they should be saying this is just the objective truth and it may feel like we're attacking Trump, but it's true. I totally agree with you. Totally agree with you. I mean, it, it used to frustrate the hell out of me, Walter, when I would see people going out and doing man in the street interviews, one side for, one against and one not sure. Uh, that's not journalism. Journalism requires that you that you have the capacity to at least lay out the facts so that your readers, your audience, can then draw their own conclusions. Uh, and when, they're, you know, when the laying out of facts looks like an indictment, I don't have any problem with that. To what extent do you think that the Internet and social media has exacerbated this problem? Hugely. Hugely. I mean, I think the Internet has been, uh, you know, the Internet is on one level uh, one of the greatest gifts to mankind that we can imagine. On another level, it is a weapon of mass destruction uh, and is being used as such. The fact of the matter is it is the Internet uh, which has created things like Twitter, uh, it is the Internet that has enabled people of extreme ideologies on the left and on the right to get in touch, not just with the half a dozen people sitting at the bar who may share their opinion, but all of a sudden, anyone with access to a laptop, anyone with access to an iPhone, has the capacity of becoming a publisher, a broadcaster, someone who potentially can reach Hundreds, thousands, uh, you know, when you and I were young journalists, if you wanted to reach a large audience, you had to work for ABC or the New York Times or the Associated Press or UPI. Uh, it wasn't possible for an individual to put something out and make sure that it would reach tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of, of people at a time. The Internet makes that possible. That is both a blessing and a curse. But isn't it in some ways 
a not just a blessing, but it really democratizes as opposed to allowing gatekeepers like you and I once were to say, here's the news. Yeah. And and if you think the democratization of journalism is a good thing, I disagree with you. I don't think it is Um, because whether, you know, you wouldn't dream of democratizing any other profession. You wouldn't democratize medicine. You wouldn't democratize the law. You wouldn't democratize plumbing or carpentry. You expect a certain level of expertise. You expect a carpenter to have had some training in his trade. I expect a journalist to have had some training in his trade. By the democratization of journalism, you make the process available to people who have absolutely no background in trying to present a fair, balanced point of view. None. Uh, So in that sense, you know, obviously we like to think that democracy is in and of itself an unimpeachable word. Uh, You know, if something is democratic, it has to be good. Not necessarily so. Do you think there's any way that the country gets back to what I guess you and I would call the old normal? No. None. Not a chance. You've uh, been a pretty bleak uh, assessment of where we are and how it could get worse. In some ways, uh, people have compared this to sort of an authoritarian uh, tumult, even the way it was in Germany in the 1930s. Your family, your parents escaped Germany, uh, I think in 1937, got to England. Is that comparison in any way valid? I don't think so. No, I mean, um, there, there is still, and I hope to God that we can, that we can defend it. There is still something unique about America and uh, the, the many, many voices. I mean, so far, at least, it, that's why it bothered me so much when, uh, when some people uh, on the left began talking early on about the resistance. And when I think about the resistance, I think about courageous Germans in, in Nazi Germany who were, who were confronting uh, the possibility of imprisonment, torture, death. I think about uh, the French resistance to uh, Nazi Germans who occupied France during World War II. We're nowhere near that in this country yet. Uh, and no, I don't see that yet. Is it possible? Uh, we are not immune to, to the laws of history. And if we give up our protections, if we, if we no longer value the rule of law and the, the appropriateness of, of journalism uh, that is much heavier on objectivity than it is on opinion, uh, if we don't value those things appropriately, then I fear not that we're going to become Nazi Germany or fascist Italy, but it's not going to be a happy place. And we have, we have seen periods like that in this country. Uh, the McCarthy era, 
in this country in the early 1950s was much closer to that. People lived in fear. People lived in fear of expressing honest opinions out loud. Um, so we've, we've come dangerously close in the past. And I think we, we are at least in a position today where it's not beyond the question. I mean, it's not beyond possibility. Uh, that we can slide more in that direction. But do I see uh, a precise parallel with Nazi Germany? I do not. Ted Koppel, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. This is Randall Wallace, the host of Bridging the Political Gap. First, I want to say thank you for tuning in, and I hope you've enjoyed the series. And I want to invite you back this spring when we return with some guests to talk history, politics, policy, and ways we can start to turn this poisonous atmosphere around, one person and one community at a time. I, for one, have never been more worried about our country and its future than I am right now. That's why I ran for Congress, wrote my book, and produced this series. So if you get a chance, please take a look at my book at Always Vote Your Conscience at Amazon.com. And if you're on Facebook, please come out and join our, our page, The Silent Majority, dedicated to bringing back common sense and civility to government. And I look forward to seeing you and being back this spring for another series of podcasts. And now, the conclusion of Bridging the Political Gap. <laughs> substitute for it. You can see what happens when there isn't any of it. Leaders have certain qualities they seem to share, from a Harry Truman to a Ronald Reagan, Democrats to Republicans. They're uniters. They don't exploit divisions. They work to bridge them. They aim high. They know that what their goal is. They have a game plan to get there. They have a vision, and they give credit to others. They're inclusive with others. They know how to inspire others. They find great advisors, welcome candor, identify and foster talent. They don't take people for granted, nor do they take their supporters for granted. They know how to get people together so they can make wise decisions, and they do that quickly. They're optimistic, and they remember that how you win matters. Finally, they remain cool under pressure, and they tell it like it is. They tell the truth. Leadership isn't there. You see what can happen. So we've spent this entire documentary talking about a generation of leadership and the examples they set. Now, let's take a look at the last two decades after that generation left the scene and the leadership we've had. But I want to say one thing to the American people. I want you to listen to me. I'm going to say this again. 
I did not have sexual relations with that woman, Miss Lewinsky. I never told anybody to lie, not a single time, never. These allegations are false. As you know, in a deposition in January, I was asked questions about my relationship with Monica Lewinsky. While my answers were legally accurate, I did not volunteer information. Indeed, I did have a relationship with Ms. Lewinsky that was not appropriate. In fact, it was wrong. It constituted a critical lapse in judgment and a personal failure on my part for which I am solely and completely responsible. Do you solemnly swear that in all things appertaining to the trial of the impeachment of William Jefferson Clinton, President of the United States, now pending, you will do impartial justice according to the Constitution and laws? So help you God. I do. At this time, I will administer the oath to all senators in the chamber in conformance with Article 1, Section 3, Clause 6 of the Constitution and the Senate impeachment rules. And I don't believe there would be that grand thing. Quite frankly, in closed session where no record is kept and no one can talk about it, that's when you can get irresponsible. I believe the senators would be more responsible if the public were watching and tend to be more bipartisan if the public's watching. We submit to you that the moment has arrived where the best interests of the nation, the wise prescription of the framers, and the failure of the manager's proof all point to dismissal. You have listened. You have heard. The case cannot be made. It is time to end it. We need you to tell us. Okay. We, we have the votes, uh, I believe, uh, not to dismiss it at this point. I, I think that is the uh, short-circuiting of the process. If not, on this vote, the yeas are 43, the nays are 57. Two-thirds of those senators voting and a quorum being present, not having voted in the affirmative, the motion is not agreed to. May I use the term Newt's tantrum? In, in answer, be removed if it's intended to bring disrespect. Without objection. There is absolutely no question that Newt Gingrich has now absolutely sewn up the category of best performance by a child actor this year. There's only one problem. The speaker is not a child. And now that this country has paid dearly for his temper tantrum and paid dearly for his shutting down the Congress, when shutting down the whole country because of his little pee, could we get a performance that's more statesmanship-like? This is what got the speaker to invoke censorship on the floor. All of this. <laughs> okay. The Republican actions today show us just how defensive they've become about a budget that guts Medicare, cuts education and environmental protection. They're not upset about this cover. They're upset because the public is rejecting Republican extremism, plain and simple. Why? Because the speaker has a grudge with the president. It's wrong, it's petty, it's demeaning, it ought to stop. Let's get on with it.
Let's let's put aside our differences on balanced budgets and everything else. I think things that they authorized uh, probably fall within the area of war crimes. Uh, whether that would be productive or not, I think is a discussion we could all have. Uh, but we have established procedures now with the International Criminal Court in The Hague, uh, where people who take actions as serving presidents or prime ministers of countries uh, have been indicted uh, and have been tried. Uh, so the precedent is there uh, to do that sort of thing. And I think we need to ask ourselves uh, whether or not it would be useful to do that uh, in the case of members of the Bush administration. It's clear that things are in... According to the indictment, the total amount of gifts that Senator Stevens is alleged to have received over the duration of the offense is greater than $250,000. Also according to the indictment, these items were not disclosed on Senator Stevens' financial disclosure forms, which he filed under penalties of perjury, either as gifts or as liabilities. And further, that Senator Stevens did not reimburse or repay VICO or its chief executive officer for these items. Guilty on out counts. But today, in a stunning reversal, the government admitted it withheld critical evidence from the defense and asking a judge to throw out Stevens' conviction. Attorney General Eric Holder promised to drop all charges saying it is in the interest of justice to dismiss the indictment and not proceed with a new trial. The jury verdict here was obtained unlawfully. The misconduct of the prosecutors was stunning to me. Well, why has it been delayed? Uh, Ma'am, at the uh, LACPR is... It, you know, do me a favor. Could you say Senator instead of Ma'am? <laughs> yes, it's sir. just a thing. I worked so hard to get that title, so I'd appreciate it. Yes, thank you. Yes, Senator. If you're so interested in him, release the transcript. Uh, you, you selectively released his emails. They're the only witness you've done that for. Uh, so you're asking why are we only asking for his transcript? I, I, I'm, I'm going to ask the gentleman from California to please do a better job of characterizing. These are not Sidney Blumenthal's emails. These are Secretary Clinton's emails. And I'll tell you what, if you think you've heard about Sidney Blumenthal so far, wait till the next round. Sure, that, we're adjourned. So no regrets about Mitt Romney, about the Koch brothers. Some people have even call, called it McCarthyite. Well, they call it whatever they want. Um, Romney didn't win, did he? I say, I say nothing because I was able to get him to produce it. He should have produced it a long time before. I say nothing. But let me just tell you, when you talk about healing, I think that I've developed very, very good relationships over the last little while with the African-American community. I think you can see that. And I feel that they really wanted me to come to that conclusion. And I think I did a great job and a great service, not only for the country, but even for the president in getting him to produce his person. Secretary Clinton. The whole racist birther lie to bed. But it can't be dismissed that easily. He has really started his political activity based on this racist lie that our first black president was not an American citizen. There was absolutely no evidence for it, but he persisted. He persisted year after year because some of his supporters, people that he was trying to bring into his fold, apparently believed it or wanted to believe it.
This is a reminder, not necessarily what you just shared. However, you stated that a sitting senator is a disgrace to the Department of Justice. Uh, I think that may have been and, Senator and, Ken. And, and this, although I would be glad to repeat it in my own words. The rule applies then I'm, to, to imputing conduct or motive through any form or voice to a sitting form of words includes quotes, articles, or other materials. So quoting Senator Kennedy, calling then nominee Sessions a disgrace is a violation of Senate rules. It was certainly not in 1986. In the opinion of the chair, it is. So can I continue with Coretta Scott King's letter? The senator may continue. A person who has exhibited so much hostility to the enforcement of those laws and thus to the exercise of those rights by black people should not be elevated to the federal bench. The irony of Mr. Sessions' nomination is that if confirmed, he will be given life tenure for doing with a federal for doing with a federal prosecution what the local sheriffs accomplished 20 years ago with clubs and cattle prods. They are Mr. President, the majority leader. Senators impugn the motives and conduct of our colleague from Alabama as warned by the chair. Senator Warren, quote, said Senator Sessions has used the awesome power of his office to chill the free exercise of the vote by black citizens. I call the senator to order under the provisions of Rule 19. Mr. President. Senator from Massachusetts. Mr. President, I am surprised that the words of Coretta Scott King are not suitable for debate in the United States Senate. We have to have the world. This isn't a question. This is a national emergency. Drugs are pouring into our country. People with tremendous medical difficulty and medical problems are pouring in, and in many, in many cases, it's contagious. They're pouring into our country. We have to have border security. We have to have a wall as part of border security. And I don't think we really disagree so much. I also know that, you know, Nancy is in a situation where it's not easy for her to talk right now. And I understand that. And I fully understand that. We're going to have a good discussion and we're going to see what happens. But we have to have border security. Mr. President, please don't characterize the strength that I bring to this meeting as the leader of the House Democrats who just won the big victory. Elections have consequences, Mr. President. And that's why the country is doing so well. But the president is representing in terms of his cards over there are not factual. We have to have an evidence-based conversation about what does work, what money has been spent, and how effective it is. This isn't about, this is about the security of our country, to take an oath to protect and defend. And we don't want to have that mischaracterized by anyone. And I agree are, with that. No, no, I agree with that. So let us have a conversation where we don't have to contradict in public the statistics that you put forth, but instead can have a conversation about what will really work and what the American people deserve from us at this uncertain time 
in their lives. Where One thing I think we can agree on is we shouldn't shut down the government over a dispute. And you want to shut it down. I, no, you keep no, talking no, no. about it. The last time, Chuck, you shut it down. No, no, no. And then you opened 20 it up times. very quickly. And 20 times. I don't want to do what you did. 20 but, times Chuck, you have called for, I will shut down the government if I don't get my wool. None of us have you said You want it. to know something? You've said okay, it. Okay, you want to put that you on my You said it. I'll take it. Okay, okay, good. You know what I'll say? Yes. If we don't get what we want, one way or the other, whether it's through you, through a military, through anything you want to call, I will shut down the government. Okay, absolutely. Fair enough. And we I am disagree. proud, and I'll we tell you disagree. what, I am proud to shut down the government for border security, Chuck, because the people of this country don't want criminals and people that have lots of problems and drugs pouring into our country. So I will take the mantle. I will be the one to shut it down. I'm not going to blame you for it. The last time you shut it down, it didn't work. I will take the mantle Good. of shutting down. And I'm going to shut it down for border But we security. believe you shouldn't okay. shut it down. Thank you very much, everybody. Michelle always says, Michelle Obama, I love her, you know. <coughs> she and my wife, like, really tight, um, which always scares me and Barack. <laughs> but Michelle always says that, you know, when they go low, we go high. No. No. When they go low, we kick them. Well, the American people also elected Donald Trump to be the president of the United States in the 2016 election, and there's one party that can't seem to get over it. Now, we understand the fact that in 2018, you took the House of Representatives, and we haven't spent our time during your tenure in power trying to remove the Speaker of the House, trying to delegitimize your ability to govern. Frankly, we'd love to govern with you. We'd love to pass USMCA. We'd love to put out a helping hand to our seniors and lower prescription drug prices. It's the will of the people you ignore when you continue down this terrible road of impeachment. Professor Gerhardt, you gave money to Barack Obama, right? Favor a party whose voters are more spread out. Well, and I do professor, not have hold on. I, again, I'm very, I'm, I'm very limited on time, professor. And, I, and so I just have to say, when you talk about how liberals want to be around each other and cluster and conservatives don't want to be around each other and so they have to spread out, it makes people, you may not see this from, you know, like the ivory towers of your law school, but it makes actual people in this country when feel like, excuse me, me, you don't get to interrupt me on this time. Now, let me also suggest that when you invoke the president's son's name here, here when you try to make a little joke out of referencing Baron Trump, that does not lend credibility to your argument. It makes you look mean. It makes you look like you're attacking someone's family, the minor child of the president of the United States. So let's see if we can get into the facts. And so let's save the cause. Let's make sure we show up wherever we have to show up. And if you see anybody from that cabinet in a restaurant, in a department store, at a gasoline station, you get out and you create a crowd, and you push back on them, and you tell them they're not welcome anymore, anywhere. Everyone, to this confirmation hearing on the nomination of Mr. Judge Chairman Brett Kavanaugh, Mr. Chairman, to serve as Associate Justice, Mr. Chairman, I'd like Supreme to be recognized for United a question States. before we proceed. Mr. Chairman, I'd like to be recognized to ask a question before we proceed. The committee received just last night, less than 15 hours ago, 42,000 pages of documents that we have not had an opportunity to review or read or analyze. You are out, you're out of order. I'll proceed. We cannot possibly move forward, Mr. Chairman. I with extend this a very warm welcome to Judge Kavanaugh. We have not been Kavanaugh given an opportunity to have a meaningful to his wife, hearing Ashley. on this nominee. There are two daughters. 
Mr. Chairman, I agree with my colleague, Senator Harris. Mr. Chairman, Judge we received 42,000 documents that we haven't been everyone able else joining to review us last night, and we believe this hearing should be postponed. I know this postponed. is an exciting day for all of you here. And you're rightly proud. Mr. Chairman, of if, if we cannot be recognized, I move to adjourn. The American people. Mr. Chairman, I move to adjourn. To directly from Judge Kavanaugh. And Mr. Chairman, I move to adjourn. Mr. Chairman, we have been denied. We have been denied real access to the documents we need to advise. Mr. Chairman, regular order is called for. Which turns this hearing into a charade and a mockery of our norms. Well, and Mr. Chairman, I therefore move to adjourn this hearing. So here are the facts. Judge Kavanaugh is one of the most distinguished judges. Mr. Chairman, I think we ought to have this Miss Loudmouth removed. I mean, we, we shouldn't have to put up with this kind of stuff. Yes or no? Well, is there a person you're talking about? I'm asking you a very direct question. Yes or no? I, I need to know the I'm not sure I know everyone who works at that law firm. I don't think you need to. I think you need to know who you talked with. Who'd you talk to? I don't think I... I I'm not remembering, but I'm, I'm happy to be refreshed or if you want to tell me who you're thinking so are who you, works. I, are you saying that with all that you remember, you have an impeccable memory. You've been speaking for almost eight hours, I think more, with this committee about all sorts of things you remember. How can you not remember whether or not you had a conversation about Robert Mueller or his investigation with anyone at that law firm. This I don't investigation know. has only been going on for so long, sir. So right, I'm not sure I, do I, I'm just trying to think, do I know anyone who works at that firm? I might know. Have you had, that's not my question. My question is, have you had a conversation with anyone at that firm about that investigation? It's a really specific question. I would like to know the person you're thinking of, because what if there's- I think you're thinking of someone and you don't want to tell us. Who did you have a conversation with? I, I am. I'm not. Mr. Chairman, I I'm going to release the email about racial profiling, and I understand that that the penalty comes with potential ousting from the Senate. I'm releasing it to expose that number one, the emails are being withheld from the public, have nothing to do with national security, nothing to jeopardize the sanctity of those ideals that I hold dear. Running for president is no excuse for violating the rules of the Senate or of the confidentiality of the documents that we that we are privy to. No senator deserves to sit on this committee or serve in the Senate, in my view, if they decide to be a law unto themselves and willingly flout the rules of the Senate and the determination of confidentiality and classification. It's called the Presidential Records Act. That's the demon that you're after here. That is the only reason we've got this issue. Now. The custodian of those documents holds and exercises a privilege on behalf of the Bush administration. The custodian of those records has agreed, notwithstanding the privileged nature of those documents, to hand them over to us with an understanding that when there is a need that arises with respect to one or more of those documents to make them public, uh, we can, as a committee, go through a process to do that. There is no Senate rule that, that I violated because there's no Senate rule that accounts for this process. I will say that I did willingly violate the chair's rule on the committee confidential process. Uh, I take full responsibility for violating that, sir. And I violate it because I, I sincerely believe that the public deserves 
to know this nominee's record. May I read the uh, Senate Rule 29-5, the standing rules of the Senate for the benefit of all senators. Any senator, officer, or employee of the Senate who shall disclose the secret or confidential business or proceedings of the Senate, including the business and proceedings of the committees, subcommittees, and offices of the Senate, shall be liable, if a senator, to suffer expulsion from the body, and if an officer or employee to dismissal from the service of the Senate and to punishment or contempt. So I would, uh, I would uh, correct the senator's statement. There is no rule. There is clearly a rule uh, that applies. Then apply Mr. the rule Chairman, and bring the charges. Mr. Bring. Chairman. If you wanted an FBI investigation, you could have come to us. What you want to do is destroy this guy's life, hold this seat open, and hope you win in 2020. You said that, not me. You've got nothing to apologize for. When you see Sotomayor and Kagan, tell them that Lindsey said all of because I voted for them. I would never do to them what you've done to this guy. This is the most unethical sham since I've been in politics. And if you really wanted to know the truth, you sure as hell wouldn't have done what you've done to this guy. Are you a gang rapist? No. I cannot imagine what you and your family have gone through. Boy, y'all want power. God, I hope you never get it. I hope the American people can see through this sham. That you knew about it and you held it. You had no intention of protecting Dr. Ford. None. She's as much of a victim as you are. God, I hate to say it because these have been my friends. But let me tell you when it comes to this. You're looking for a fair process? came to the wrong town at the wrong time, my friend. If you, Judge Kavanaugh, turn to Don McGahn and to this committee and say, for the sake of my reputation, my family name, and to get to the bottom of the truth of this, I am not going to state be an obstacle to an FBI investigation. I would hope that all the members of the committee would join me in saying, we're going to abide by your wish- wishes and we will have that investigation. I... I- Welcome, whatever the committee wants to do, because I'm telling the truth. I want to know what you want to do. I, I'm telling the truth. I want to know what you want to do, Judge. I'm innocent. I'm innocent of this charge. And you're prepared for an FBI investigation? They don't reach conclusions. You reach the conclusions. No, but they do investigate questions. I'm, I'm and innocent. And you can't have it both ways, Judge. You can't say here at the beginning. I wanted a hearing. Moment, Look, I welcome thing, any kind of investigation. This thing was sprung on me. This. this thing was sprung at the last minute after being held by staff. You know, Judge, and I called for no I called for a to, hearing immediately. If there is no truth to her charges, the FBI investigation will show that. Are you afraid that they might not? Oh, come Come on, on. The FBI does not reach. Con- you know, you know this is. You know that's a phony well, question because the FBI doesn't reach conclusions. So let, they just go. provide the three hundred twos. Three hundred twos. So I can explain to people who don't know what that is. What? They just go and do what you're doing. Oh, yeah. Ask questions and then type up a report. They don't reach the bottom this line. Morning. Conclusion. In the end, there is likely to be as much doubt as certainty going out of this room today. And that as we make decisions going forward, I I hope that people will recognize that. And in the rhetoric that we use, in the language that we use going forward, that we'll recognize that, that there is doubt. Do you believe in God? I do. Before we get into this next one, I I just had to stop the tape to tell you what you're getting ready to listen to. might actually be the most galling thing, absolutely shameless thing, 
that I can ever remember listening to this exchange between Senator Sheldon Whitehouse and Justice, eventual Justice Brett Kavanaugh. Go through my yearbook. Yeah, I'm actually interested. You know, lawyers um, should be working off of common terms and understand the words that we're using. I think that's a pretty basic principle among lawyers, wouldn't you agree? It is. If you're worried about my yearbook, have at it, Senator. um, Let's look at uh, Beach Week Ralph Club biggest contributor. What does the word Ralph mean in that? Uh, that probably refers to uh, throwing up. I'm known to have a weak stomach and I always have. In fact, the last time I was here, you asked me about having ketchup on spaghetti. I always have had a weak stomach. I don't know that I asked about ketchup on spaghetti. You, but You didn't. Someone did. Okay. And, and this is well known. Anyone who's known me, like a lot of these people behind me, have uh, known me my whole life, know you know, I got a weak stomach, whether it's with beer or with spicy food or anything. So the vomiting that you reference in the Ralph Club reference um, related to the consumption of alcohol. Senator, I was uh, the top of my class academically, busted my butt in school, captain of the varsity basketball team, got into Yale College. When I got into Yale College, got into Yale Law School, worked my tail off. And... Did the word Ralph you used in your yearbook? I already, said, I already answered the alcohol. question. If you're, yeah, yeah. Did it relate to alcohol? I like you beer. Answer that. I like beer. I don't know if you do. Okay. Do you like beer, Senator, or not? Um, what do you like to drink? Next one is. Senator, what do you like? Judge, to drink? have you. I don't know if it's boofed or boofed. How do you pronounce that? Judge. That refers to flatulence. We were 16. Okay. And so when. Uh, your friend Mark Judge said the same, put the same thing in his yearbook page back to you. He had the same meaning. It was flatulence. I don't know what he did, but that's my recollection. We want to talk about flatulence at age 16 on a yearbook page. I'm, I'm game. Um, you mentioned, I think, the Renate or Renate, Renata. I don't know how you pronounce that. That's a, that's a proper name of an individual you know? Renata. Renata. It's spelled with an E at the end, R-E-N-A-T-E. Is that correct? Okay. And then after that is the word alumnius. What does the word alumnius mean in that context? I explained that in my opening statement. We, um, she was a great friend of ours. Uh, we, a bunch of us went to dances with her. She hung out with us as a group. The media circus that has been generated by this thought and reported that it referred to sex. It did not. Never had any, as she herself said on the record, any kind of sexual interaction uh, with her. And I'm sorry how that's been misinterpreted and sorry about that, as I explained in my opening statement, because she's a good person. And to have her name dragged through this hearing is a joke and really an embarrassment. Devil's Triangle. Drinking game. How's it played? Three glasses in a triangle. And you ever played quarters? No. Okay, it's a quarters game. Um, Anne Doherty's. As you can tell from my calendar, she had a party on the Fourth of July in uh, the beach in Delaware. And there are like one, two, three, four, five, six, seven F's in front of the Fourth of July. What does that signify, if anything? One of our friends, Squee. When he said the F word, starting at a young age, 
had kind of a wind-up to the F word. Kind of a... (laughs) And then the word would come out. And when we were 15, we thought that was funny. And it became an inside joke for the... How he would say... And I won't repeat it here for the F word. Referring to Georgetown versus Louisville and... Do you want any more on the Fs? No, Orioles versus Red Sox. In both, you respond, who won anyway or who won that game anyway? Should we draw any conclusion that a loss of recollection associated with alcohol was involved in you not knowing who won the games that you attended? No. Uh, First of all, the Georgetown Louisville was watching it on TV, a party. And the, That's the, not inconsistent with drinking and not and, remembering what happened. I'm, I'm aware. And the point of uh, both was we, in essence, were having a party and didn't pay attention to the game, even though the game was the excuse we had for getting together. I think that's a very common. I don't know if you've been to a Super Bowl party, for example, Senator, and not paid attention to the game and just hung out with your friends. I don't know if you've done that or not, but that's what we were referring to. Uh, Are there any senators in the chamber who wish to vote or change a vote? If not, on this vote, the ayes are 50, the nays are 48. The nomination of Brett M. Kavanaugh of Maryland to be an associate justice of the Supreme Court of the United States is confirmed. Majority leader. I ask consent the motion to reconsider be considered made and laid upon the table and the president be immediately notified of the Senate's action. Without objection. I suggest the absence of quorum. Sergeant in arms will restore order in the gallery. Russia, if you're listening, I hope you're able to find the 30,000 emails that are missing. I think you will probably be rewarded mightily by our press. I have nothing to do with Russia. I don't have any jobs in Russia. I'm all over the world, but we're not involved in Russia. If we had had confidence that the president clearly did not commit a crime, we would have said so. We did not, however, make a determination as to whether the president did commit a crime. The president cannot be charged with a federal crime while he is in office. That is unconstitutional. Even if the charge is kept under seal and hidden from public view, that too is prohibited. In fact, when I decided to just do it, I said to myself, I said, you know, this Russia thing with Trump and Russia is a made up story. Well, I respect the move, but the entire thing has been a witch hunt and uh, there is no collusion between certainly myself and my campaign but I can always speak for myself and the Russians, zero. When a subject of an investigation obstructs that investigation or lies to investigators, it strikes at the core of the government's effort to find the truth and hold wrongdoers accountable. If we had had confidence that the president clearly did not commit a crime, we would have said so. We did not, however, make a determination as to whether the president did commit a crime. The Constitution requires a process other than the criminal justice system to formally accuse a sitting president of wrongdoing. Thank you. Thank you for being here today. There was no obstruction and none whatsoever. And 
It was a complete and total exoneration. Oh, we'd feel like. One of my proudest moments is when I looked at Barack Obama in the eye and I said, Mr. President, you will not fill this Supreme Court vacancy. Since you're attacking us, can you give us a question? Since you're, no, Mr. President-elect, go ahead. President-elect, since you are attacking our news organization, can you give us a chance? Your organization. You are attacking our news organization. Can you give us a chance to ask a question, sir? Go ahead, sir. Can you state, Mr. President-elect? Go ahead. Can you state categorically, Mr. President-elect? Can you give us a question? Don't be rude. Attacking us. Can you give us a question? Don't be. Can you give us a question? I'm not going to give you a question. Can you state categorically? You are fake news, sir. Go ahead. Can you state categorically that nobody? No, Mr. President-elect, that's not appropriate. Now that we've sown the wind on the past two decades of leadership, let's look forward at what it wrought us on January 6th, 2021. We reap the whirlwind. Thank you for listening to Bridging the Political Gap. If you've liked what you've heard, please share it. And we would love to hear from you and your thoughts on on our show. So if you'd like to, please leave a review wherever you get your podcast. And until next time, thanks again and so long for now.